Does the world really need another podcast? There are over 5 million podcasts available globally with 70 million episodes that you can catch in 150 languages. So why go to the trouble of adding yet another? In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So if one heart can be touched, if one mind can be renewed, and if just one life could be transformed, then I think it's worth it. This is one more cast. Book of John, chapter 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. John is referenced as the disciple that Jesus loved. He loved everyone, of course, but there seems to be particular attachment that Jesus had with John, John had with Jesus. Again, the Lord is no respecter of persons, but lots of scholars and people way more educated and understanding of these matters than myself pointed out to the fact that probably John was the youngest of the disciples when he was called. It probably also explains uh, his longevity, the last one to to die. Of course, wrote the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. And so if, if John loved Jesus so much and Jesus loved John so much, I think it's significant to point out that when writing this particular passage, when the primary character of a story is Jesus and he's not given preeminence immediately, I don't think that detail should just be breezed over quickly. I think John is is giving us a clue and an insight into the complete setup and plot of this whole story. Later, you find that Mary had some authority in the matter. She looked at the servants, and we'll read that verse in just a second, but looked at the servants and said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. You don't just you don't just take that authority. The authority is given to you. So what I think we have in this case is, of course, there's a wedding taking place and in Jewish custom and tradition, you know, there's the, there's the betrothal. Maybe it was an arranged wedding. Maybe it wasn't, maybe came about because I don't know, they met at a drive-in theater. Who cares? But the wedding ceremony itself was very, very important. And the families would come together, friends, maybe even distant relatives would all come together and celebrate these two people coming together. And there would be perhaps, you know, some time, guests filtering in and folks finding their place and celebration and introductions, slapping of, these are human beings. I mean, they're having a real event. It's not just a sterile in a vacuum story that we're trying to draw off of some really thin 
cheap Bible paper. This is a this is an actual event where human beings participated. So there's all these sort of human functions going on, and and maybe there's some you know there's some emotions because there's a black sheep in the family, and you know Uncle Billy he's kind of wild, he gets kind of crazy at these kind of parties. This is just a real thing, and. From the context and from what we know of the scripture, these feasts can take place over a course of days, and then then the couple comes together, they consummate their vows, and then they could go on in the party for a number of other days. And in some cases, you can find throughout history that these wedding feasts could go on for days, if not weeks. And it was quite a logistical accomplishment to pull one of these weddings off. I mean... It's tough enough to have a birthday party for a three-year-old with, you know, someone making balloon animals and picking up the cake at Costco. I mean, it's, there's a lot. You got to sweep the floor. You got to make sure you have enough toilet paper—not the good stuff, but you know, the guest stuff, the stuff that's going to be ripped through and and used and not appreciated. Or maybe you're the type of person that wants to put your absolute best foot forward. So now you've got the Charmin. Normally, you use the Scott tissue or the, you know, the thousand sheet rolls, the cheap stuff. But when the guests are coming, you're going to up it a little bit. So so that's what's going on. And, and Mary, from what we can gather from this context, is, for all intents and purposes, the wedding planner. No doubt there's a governor, there's an ultimate authority, but he's there just to oversee. He's there just to be a figurehead, if you will, and, and help both families, the groom and the bride, uh, ensure that there's a good time and that there's order. And what it seems like, though, is that Mary is the actual wedding planner. She's the person behind the scenes with the walkie-talkie. She's the person that's making sure the servants are where they need to be and the timing and making sure that everyone has fresh napkins and making sure that the pillows are fluffed and making sure that all the guests are having the time of their life. Because if, if they don't have the time of their life, it could be a direct reflection on the two families that are coming together to celebrate this just momentous occasion of these two people being married. And so so John mentions Mary first. Mary's there. And almost as if it's point number two, not point number one, but point number two, Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So they went. Verse three, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. And then in verse 4, and I guess in verse 3, we kind of skipped over the fact that G, that Mary comes to Jesus again. She's fully aware of the logistics because she's in charge. Verse 4, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. I don't believe for a second that Jesus is being disrespectful. Um, he is saying that, you know, this is not my problem yet. Uh, I've, I'm just a guest here. You invited me. Um, you know, I could have been on your team. I could have been, you know, someone that was helping you. I could have driven the delivery vans. I could have made sure that the wedding cake was properly chilled and none of the frosting was melting in the noonday sun. But I mean, I'm at the guest table just like everybody else. I mean, what do you want me to do? I'm not in charge. You're in charge. What's my connection? in terms of authority in this whole deal. And notice what happens in verse number five. His mother saith unto the servants. Now, have you ever been to a little mall playscape 
where you got a bunch of little kids playing around and you know, you got a dad sitting over on one of the couches and he's got his Starbucks and he looks like he's at his wits end and he just wants his kid to behave. He doesn't want his kid to beat anybody up, but he also doesn't want his kid to get beaten up. And and then, you know, somebody does like get a little rough or rowdy. Maybe there's a kid that's a little past the age of being in those little playscapes with little three or four. Maybe there's a seven-year-old and he's a little rowdy and parents are at their wits end. The seven-year-old may rough up a four-year-old a little bit. And then the parent may kind of sort of intervene and say, hey, buddy, don't do that. You know, he's smaller than you. And then the other parent, the seven-year-old parent, don't tell my kid what to do. I'll tell my kid, well, you come to me if you've got a problem with my kid. I mean, that's just a, I've seen it happen a thousand times if I've seen it once. You're not going to tell my kids what to do. I'll beat my kids if I want to, but you're not going to tell them what to do. Nobody tells anybody else's servants what to do. They're not your servants. I mean, this was, authority was a big deal in Jewish culture, certainly a big deal with the Roman occupation. You don't just assume authority for yourself and tell other people's servants what to do. So, but Mary had the authority and didn't hesitate for one second to tell these servants what to do. She looked to her, to the servants that were there. It's also apparent that whether she went to them and Jesus was present or the servants were following her around, ready to spring into action at her beck and call. And she says, the greatest advice that you'll ever hear coming from a human being. She says, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Whatever he says, don't qualify it. Don't check with me. We don't have time for that. We've got guests here for crying out loud and we've run out of wine. Someone either failed to plan the right quantity of wine or these these drunkards, these lushes have just absolutely just ransacked all of our wine and we don't have any more wine left. We have to act quickly, so don't worry about verifying. Just do what he says. That's the greatest advice any human being will ever say to any other human being. Whatever he says, do it. You want to hear on a side note, some of the worst advice that any human being will ever give. I turn to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15, and this is, of course, nearing the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Who will ye ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Verse 19, it says, When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife, so Pilate's wife, sent unto him, saying, probably texted him, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Just wanted to put those two cross-references together, because what Mary says to the servants is the greatest advice whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And what Pilate's wife says to him is the absolute worst advice that any human being could ever give, and that is, have thou nothing to do with this just man. So the servants have now heard the voice of Mary, who they were reporting to prior. And Mary is saying, I am relieving myself of duty 
I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer the ultimate authority. The buck no longer stops at me. Jesus said it right. What have I to do with thee? He was not in charge, but now I'm making him in charge. Can I stop and pause just for a second and say that if Jesus is a guest invited into your life and you go asking him for help or you go asking him for salvation or you go asking him to help you overcome an insurmountable mountain or obstacle when you need him most, and he's just a guest in your life. He will remain a guest in your life until you make him the host in your life. Until you remove him from the guest table, where he's just probably playing euchre with everyone else, all the other relatives, and having a good time and telling fishing stories. He's just there. He's present. He has his eye on you. He's constantly watching you. He has his ear trained into you. He is standing at the door of your heart and knocking, asking to come in and sup. But until you ask him to come from the guest table and sit at the head and be the boss and be in charge, his response will be, hey, I'm not going to impose myself on you. I'm not going to overcome your will. What have I to do with you? My time has not yet come. I'm just sitting here doing what I'm supposed to do. But when my time comes, when you're ready to make that transition from you being in charge to me being in charge, just let me know. Verse 6 says, And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. I think I looked that up one time. They're about 36 gallons, plus or minus, in each one of those water pots. They're, they're huge. I could be wrong. I'm trusting my memory, which is getting worse and worse. Big water pots sitting there made of stone. It says that they were there after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. I just wanted to, to uh, tag in on a couple of passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter four, or 24, verse 32, And the man came into the house, and he girded his camels, or ungirded his camels, rather, gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. In Genesis 43 and 24, it says, And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their asses provender. In Judges chapter 19 and verse 21, So he brought him into his house and gave provender unto the asses. They washed their feet and did eat and drink. In 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 41, and she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of thy servants, my Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 8, David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house, wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house there and followed him a mess out from... Fix that. Start the verse all over. In 2 Samuel... Chapter 11, verse 8, And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. We're, we're reading these passages because of that phrase there, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. We just read one, two, three, four, five, six passages, I think, having to do with feet washing. And then in Luke chapter 7, verse 44, says, he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, 
but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. This little cluster of water pots were there after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. These were water pots that were used to wash feet. They weren't just random water pots that people would dip their little sippy cups into and refill their aquafinas. This was foot washing water. And Jesus says, fill up the foot washing water. I want you to notice, he doesn't say, empty the six pots, scrub them, do one part bleach, ten parts water, sanitize, purify, because we're fixing to drink out of there. He says, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Isn't it fascinating that the servants that were just listening to Mary bark out orders for days, all of the sudden, she relinquishes command, gives it to Jesus. He says, fill them up with water. And they didn't say, <laughs> they didn't say, what do you mean by full? Do you mean like three quarters of the way full? Could we like say two thirds, 66.67%? How close? Hear me now. How close can we get to being full and satisfy you? Because we don't want to overdo it. How close is close enough? He said, fill them up. And they filled them up to the brim. You don't have to say anything more. You're the boss. You said full. Full's not full until you, you know, you put a bunch of water in a glass and you can fill. I, I think I saw this on Mr. Mr. Wizard's World back in the day at Nickelodeon. You fill the glass of water. You can get it to where it looks full and you can put a couple more drops in. And all of a sudden you start to see the water actually raise over the 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 lip of the cup. And if you do it slowly, the molecules will continue to hold on to each other. You can actually put more water in the cup than the cup can contain. It's actually setting up above the top level of the cup. Try this with your kids. It's pretty awesome. They filled it to the brim. When Jesus says, fill it up, fill it to the brim. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, then take up your cross and follow him. Don't ask, how long do I have to carry it? Can I pick a light one? Are there any exceptions to the rule? Go whole hog. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to check in part of the time. We're not going to plug into the church a little bit. We're not going to make some exceptions in our lives because, you know, we still want to relate to the world. You know, we still want to have our feet on the ground. You know, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. When he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that doesn't mean first of three. That means first only. That doesn't mean just one thing among the other things that we do that we also give high priority to. It means that he is the only priority. And when he says, fill up the water pots, you should, you should leave puddles on the ground outside those water pots trying to get it full because the man said, fill it up and he's in charge. Verse 8, he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. Think, 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 think. You're a servant. If you're a servant, you're in a fairly precarious position in life anyway. You don't get to call all the shots. 
you're only given the authority that the master of the house gives you. And at any given moment, if your master goes stark, raven, lunatic, crazy, he can have you beheaded, he can have you thrown into prison, he can sell your hide. So you're always careful to be very, very aware of what the master really wants. Sometimes you probably have to read between the lines, and sometimes I think there's a lot of art to being a really good servant, and that without that art, you're not going to survive very long. You've got to really capture the essence of what your master says. And these guys knew where the water came from. These guys knew the risk involved. They knew that emotions were high. They probably were about out of other things, too, if they were out of wine. They knew that, boy, any moment now, Master, he's a nice guy. But I don't want to be made a spectacle of. I don't want to be made an example of. I'm going to be really careful to watch my P's and Q's. And Jesus says, now, go into the water pots, draw out some of that water from the foot-washing, toe-scum, floaty, bacteria-ridden water. If it was clean, I don't think it was clean. But if it was clean, if it was spotless and sterile, the image of taking water that's intended for feet and serving it to the governor who's expecting wine, incredibly risky. I would probably have a nervous breakdown. I would probably lose my mind. It says that they bear it, verse 8. And they bear it. They did what the man said to do. They were following the advice of Mary. Mary's been a good boss. We've never been steered wrong by Mary. And she says, hey, whatever he says to you, do it. We've filled the water pots upon his request to the brim, by the way. And now we're bearing out this water that was foot washing water and taking it to the governor. Verse 9. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, he didn't have any idea where it had come from. That's a good year. He had no idea. I have no idea. I'm not up on my wine vernacular. Pardon me for being a teetotaler. Is Dom Perignon a type of wine? I remember back in the day hearing an advertisement, Reuniti. Is that, does that make sense? Text me, email me, set me straight. You Alkies out there. He had no idea where this wine came from. He was a wine expert, more than likely. This guy's this guy's a, a dude of status. Ooh. You know how some people can taste wine, and, the, and they know what valley that the grapes came from. That's You drink a lot of wine if you know, oh, those, that came from Napa Valley. I can taste. There's an essence there. You drink a lot of wine if you can distinguish that. He had no idea where it came from. Look at this parenthetical phrase. If you've got your KJV open, John 2, 9. But the servants which drew the water knew. <laughs> Those guys. I'm going to interview a handful of people the second I get to heaven. These guys are on that list. Guys, seriously, tell me. That day, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're in a panic. You don't know what to do. You've never seen Mary freak out like this before. You've never been to a wedding that lasted so long and people ran out of wine. When Jesus told you to dip into that foot-washing water and take it to the governor, 
What was really going through your mind? I want that answer. I'm just going to ask the question and shut up and listen for the answer. They knew exactly where it came from. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Hey, imagine what the servants are thinking now. Oh, Lord, have mercy. He's called the bridegroom. He's going to have us run through. He's going to sell us to the Egyptians. Verse 10, and saith unto him, hey, come here. Typically, I've been to a lot of these feasts. I've been governor on several occasions. I'm the grand marshal. Usually, usually my taste is pretty accurate. Something I've noticed about all the other weddings I've been to, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. He wants to make a first impression. Boy, these impressions are big. Status means a lot. We don't have much, we Jewish folks, but we have our pride. And we're craftsmen, and we don't want to give some janky little mad dog 2020. How's that for a reference? Everybody always gives the good wine at first, and then when when men have well drunk, when they're either drunk or when their taste buds are so seared because they've been sloshing it for days, then we bring out the cheap stuff. Then we bring out the stuff that people can't really distinguish what valley the grapes came from. But you, buddy boy, you're a sly little fox. You have kept the good wine until now. How in the, why would you do that? I'm curious. What's your strategy behind it? Why did you, the wine you brought in the first place was so good that we completely depleted the supply. And just at the moment when we thought, OMG, we're toast because we ran out of the good stuff and we, we don't have any wine at all. You. I mean, you brought out the 50 cal, baby. You brought out the good stuff. Well, we know why it was the good stuff. We know why it was better than anything the governor had ever tasted before because he had never tasted that year before because that year is now. Isn't it interesting that the Lord is a very present help in the time of... No, it needs to be a 50-year wine. It needs to be a 100-year wine. This is a very momentous occasion. Yeah, but you know what? Take all your man-made, vintage, whatever, best of the best of the top selling of the greatest hits. I don't need yesterday's miracle, baby. I need now miracle. And when the now miracle comes, it blows every other miracle away. I don't need crossing the Red Sea right now. I'm not in front of the Red Sea right now. I've got a problem in my family that I need the Lord to give me a miracle on. I don't need Red Sea. I need right now. And this governor has tasted, he's in his mouth, he's got a right now miracle, and it is blowing his mind. It is sending his taste buds on an adventure that they have never been on before. The Lord Jesus is in the mind-blown business, people. He's still doing miracles today. You can't set up a scenario that he's not able to just, bam, blow your mind. He's just waiting. He's just waiting for someone to say, hey, I'm tired of being in charge. I'm tired of being the boss. I'm tired of dropping the ball. I'm tired of feeling inadequate. I'm tired of doing everything that I can logistically to make it all right, make the trains run on time, make sure everybody's happy, make sure that we're progressing, make sure that we're prospering and flourishing. But I continue to spin my wheels. I'm sick and tired of being the host. I'm sick and tired of being in charge of my life. Why don't you just ask the Lord to take over? 
Don't let him be a guest. Make him the host. Verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. If you want to see the beginning of miracles take place in your life, ask him to be the host and not the guest. And then do whatever he says.